Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. If you've got one of these red pew Bibles, that's on page 981. The chapters are the, the big numbers, and then the verses are the little ones in here. So in the red Bibles, it's page 981, and we'll read the start of chapter 14 in Matthew. <clears throat> So, Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Well, that's a gruesome tale, isn't it? It's a pretty dark story of the powerful and the powerless, isn't it? Just before this section, if you're here with us last week, we saw Jesus rejected in his own hometown. But here the narrator steps away from Jesus' story for a minute to tell us about the, the end of John. Let me just give you 20 seconds on who this John the Baptist is before we go any further. Now, he's a prophet, right? He's one of those who speaks for God. He's a, he's a fearless prophet, as you can tell. He's a, he's a righteous prophet. And he's been out in the wilderness, dressed rather unconventionally, it seems, and uh, eating an unusual diet, perhaps a precursor to one of these Strange modern ways of losing weight. Um, All the while, he's been calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 reports to us. He's, He's not called John the Baptist because he goes to this kind of church. Though I'm, I'm sure he would have, obviously, if he was around nowadays. <clears throat> but he's called John the Baptist because he's made a career of baptizing people, of immersing them, of putting them under the water in the River Jordan is a symbolic washing, just reflecting people's repentance. They're kind of turning away from wrong and turning towards what is right. Now, John is also one of Jesus' relations. He's the son of Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. I was trying to figure out what that relation is, but I don't know. But he's a relation of Jesus, and he's been talking about Jesus. He talks about how Jesus is going to be far more significant than John is by a long way. But more important for today's section, John has been talking about this Herod that we've been reading about as well. Do you see that in verses 3 and 4? 
in verses 3 and 4, he says, It is not lawful for you to have her, he says. So let's pick up this question of power and powerlessness. Does this righteous John have any power in this story at all? What do you think? Well, he's, he's imprisoned, right? For challenging Herod, and Herod doesn't want to stop there. The text tells us Herod wants to kill him. You can see that in verse 5. He wants to kill John. Now, from some of the other biographies of Jesus, from some of the other Gospels, we know that there's a bit of a more complicated relationship between Herod and John. He starts out being intrigued by this John guy. He wants to hear what he's saying, where his wife, Herodias, has always been against John, and it seems that she has turned Herod round to her side now. He definitely wants blood. But John, for all of his criticism of Herod's illicit relationship, he's safe for now. He's in prison, but he's safe for now. It seems like he's only alive on account of his reputation among the people. He's a prophet, right? They regard him as a prophet. So he's been arrested. He's been thrown into prison. He's been silenced. No more of that public criticism, John, says the apparently all-powerful Herod. But John does have a little bit of power here, doesn't it? He, he can't just be silenced. He can't just be extinguished because of the way the crowds think about him. Or so it seems, of course. Perhaps Herod's forgotten about John once John's in prison. I mean, there's no more public slagging. There's no more access to the press and to the people for John. He's not appearing on nightly Galilean news explaining why Herod is wrong. So perhaps Herod's forgotten about John once he's in prison, but Herod's wife Herodias, she has not. And through her scheming that we read about here, her daughter, she persuades her daughter, an imprisoned John quickly becomes a dead John. Even this is that ever the fate of the powerless in a world ruled by the powerful? Is that, is that the end? No surprise. Is that, is that what you think? Is that what we assume would happen in this world, right? The powerful, they run the show. The powerless, they get crushed and just swept aside. It's a pretty shocking outcome, though, because John is this remarkable righteous character. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, if ever there was a case of godliness unrewarded, wasn't yet the life of John the Baptist. And he's right. Remember what Jesus said about John a few chapters back? He says, among those born of women, there is not one risen greater than John the Baptist. There's his head on a plate. The wild, ascetic John, he's gone. The show's over, right? And apparently it's all been for nothing. His, his critique of Herod his risk-taking, his boldness, apparently all for nothing. Herod doesn't turn away from this wrong marriage. He doesn't repent. He doesn't come and be baptized. All of John's words seem to have had no effect at all. His whole life, in fact, seems to have been for nothing. The powerless, swept aside by the powerful. Is that what this story shows us? Well, let's turn our attention onto the powerful for a minute, shall we? Let's just look at these rulers. These rulers in this passage, do they, do they actually have that unbridled power they seem to yield? For the detail-oriented among you, this Herod 
is one of the many Herods who show up in the Bible just to make things maximally confusing. They seem to all name each other after each other. They're all called the same. You would have thought it'd be confusing then to say, hi, Herod, hi, Herod, hi, Herod, hi, Herod, hi, Herod. Can I come to But they're all called Herod. So one Herod, okay, is involved in this massacre around the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. That's one Herod. That's the dad of this one. Another Herod, showing up tonight, gets eaten by worms. Another gruesome end. That's his nephew. That's not this guy. This one's kind of in the middle. No creativity. No compassion for historians in their naming. It's terrible. So Herod, this, um, this Herod here, is Herod the Tetrarch, okay, the ruler of a quarter. So he's sort of a mini-king. Does he have power? Oh, surely he does, right? But, but perhaps as not as much power as it might seem at first. Remember why John was alive in prison. Why was John alive in prison? I was there in verse 5 for us. Can you see? Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people. He's afraid of the people. Now, if you have power, if you have real power, unchallengeable power. Are you afraid of the people? No. So that's obviously not the sort of power this Herod has after all. We might think this is the ancient Roman Empire we're talking about here, right? This is no modern democracy. It's not representative. There's no kind of risk of defeat at the hands of the voters, no ballot box judgment of Herod forthcoming. But actually this Herod was in a bit of a precarious situation historically. He's ruling over this kind of Jewish majority neighborhood, but he's not really Jewish and everyone knows it. He's sort of mixed ethnically and the people are very dubious of him. And as he takes this, this marriage, breaking their Jewish law, he's putting himself in even more risk. So there really does look like there was a risk of an uprising or a revolution against him. So his power is limited. His power is limited. He has to worry about the crowds. It doesn't actually end there. He's afraid of the people, so he doesn't just go ahead and kill John. But then once he's under oath to give whatever the dancing girl asks, what does he do? Well, he gives her the head of John the Baptist, even though it distresses him. Why does he do that? Because of his oath, it says. And because of his dinner guests. Because of his dinner guests, this guy, he's not just afraid of the, the people out there who might rise up and kick him out of office. He's afraid of the people sitting at his table. What would they think if he didn't keep his word? Ooh. He's not in power. He didn't want to take John's head. That's not what he wanted to do. He's not in control, is he? The guests at his table have more power than he does. He invited them for dinner, and now they're telling him what to do crazy so he's afraid of the people he's afraid of his guests but the final straw is his wife can you see how completely powerless this so-called ruler Herod is who runs the show who's really in power it's his wife she completely outmaneuvers him she skewers him on his own oath in front of his guests through her daughter she manipulates him she's had this finish off John agenda and through her cunning, she's got the power to get it done. She, she baits him and she hooks him. The Herod, is he in power? Uh, not much. Perhaps not at all, really. Remember how this section is introduced. Herod's hearing these reports. He's convinced that the reports he's hearing 
reports about Jesus are actually reports about John back from the dead. He doesn't even have the power to silence John despite being able to kill him. He can't get rid of his words. He's still troubled by John even though John is dead. Turns out in the end that Herod is really shown as powerless here, isn't he? He's really shown as a powerless character. He has the title. He has the prison. He has the soldiers. But he can't silence John. So what about this manipulating wife? What about Herodias? Is she the one with power? Well, let's take a moment to explore that. Sure, she seems to have won here, doesn't she? In this chapter, she comes out the victor. She silenced the criticism of her illicit marriage. She's overpowered her husband, despite his concerns about the crowds. She looks like she's won. But ultimately, she lost. History tells us she lost. She went on manipulating and pushing her husband further. She pushed him to pursue a title of king out of jealousy for her brother who'd got upgraded to kingliness. And the historian Josephus tells us she pushed her husband to go and chase the same title, but it went horribly wrong. He went to Rome to go and ask to be made king, ended up being accused of conspiracy and exiled, all his property taken and his wife exiled with him did she have power in the end did she have control did she get what she wanted no ultimately she lost there's one more character here uh, one more player in this story he's made it into the news word about him's gotten all the way to Herod himself do you remember there are reports about Jesus now Herod is quite wrong about who Jesus is. But he has got some things right. First, he's right to connect Jesus and John. They are very connected. John prepares the way, right? Jesus is the way. John calls for repentance. Jesus makes the restoration possible. John is seized, imprisoned, killed, buried. Jesus is seized killed buried but Herod's quite wrong to see John coming back from the dead at least just yet where with Jesus it's another story altogether Jesus after he's buried will rise again in just three days like he says he says I lay down my life only to take it up again no one takes it from me he says I lay it down on my own accord I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus, this risen one. We've got to talk about this Jesus in power, don't we? See, Herod's right that the guy he's hearing reports about has power. Look at verse 2. This is John the Baptist. He says he's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. He knows Jesus has power. Romans 1 connects Jesus' power to the resurrection. It tells us through the power of the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection. As Jesus rises from the dead, his resurrection declares that he is Lord. It's a big, heavy, loaded word. He is the master. He is the one in authority. He's the one in power. 
He is the Son of God in power. And the resurrection demonstrates his power over everything, even over death. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says about this. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Catch that? In his death, Jesus breaks the power of death, that last enemy, forever. See, Jesus does have power. But it's a whole different league to Herod's power. It's a power which isn't at the whim of the crowds, which isn't manipulated by others, isn't it? You see that again and again in Jesus. Jesus isn't swayed by others. Jesus' power is totally free. It's utterly sovereign power. Jesus has a power that isn't used for unrighteousness and for evil, used to get away with wrong, but Jesus has a power that's used to secure justice and good. Jesus doesn't have a power like John's that is limited. No ruler can silence him. Even death won't stop him. But Jesus has a power that is utterly unlimited and unstoppable and unchallengeable. So Herod, well, he's exactly right when he thinks this guy he's hearing about has power. Jesus, it turns out, is the only one in our story who actually has power. All very good, but so what? What does this have to do with us? What does this mean for us? Jesus, the risen one, has all power. Not the righteous, not the rulers. Jesus, the risen one, has all the power, not the righteous and not the rulers. So so what if you're feeling powerless in life? What does this say to you? If you're feeling powerless in the face of your studies, if you're feeling powerless in the face of your boss, if you're feeling powerless in the face of your body, of your children, if you're feeling powerless in the face of the situation that surrounds you, well, well, here's the bad news. You are. You're powerless. You're limited. You do not have all the power and you are not in control in this life and in this world. It's really beyond you. All that that feels out of control around you, well, it really is. You have no capability to command this world. And that's true even if you're righteous. Even if you're as righteous as this righteous John, you are not in power here. Now, this can send us in different directions, can't it? This can, on one hand, drive us to apathy, to resignation. I'm helpless, I'm powerless, I'm just a a victim. It can lead us to a sullen acceptance. It just is what it is. Life stinks. There's nothing we can do. We just got to suck it up. Or on the other hand, it can actually be somewhat liberating, can't it? to look at this world around us, to look at our lives and to recognize we don't have it under control. We don't have to pretend that we do. We can admit our powerlessness and stop acting as if we have it all together. 
See, the bad news is that we're, we're really not in power. But here's the really good news. Someone else is. Someone else is, and it's not your tutor, it's not your boss. It's not your kids, it's not your prime minister, it's not your body. It's Jesus. Jesus is really in charge of this world. That's the big lesson here. Might have looked a lot like it was rulers. Herod or Herodias. But at the end of the day, when the chips are down, it's actually the risen one, Jesus, the one who has all power. I had a great example this week of what it feels like, what it is to be powerless in the light of your situation. I was uh, working a little bit late on Friday, just trying to finish up, getting ready to speak to you. I came down the stairs of the church office, and do you know what I discovered at the bottom? The door was locked. I thought, that's okay. I've got my keys. This shouldn't be a problem. Popped out my keys and popped them into the lock, and uh, it turns out the locks have been changed. I thought, that's not good. That's not very good. Now, I was certain I'd opened these doors just the day before, even with the new locks. So I was fiddling with my key and just pushing a little bit harder, thinking, no, this worked yesterday. I can get out of these doors. I'm not, I'm not a subject to my situations. I've got power here. Then I had a close look at my key, and do you know what? I, I, I looked very closely at the end, and I thought, that prong, I think that prong's got bent. I think that's what the problem is. I think it must have been in my pocket and squeezed, and this last little prong, it's been pushed over a little bit. I thought, I'll sort that out. So I found a nice, strong bit of metal I could lever it against, and I was just trying to bend it straight, and <laughs> boom, it popped off. And by that point, the key was really not going to work. It just, uh, it, was, it was lacking a certain something. Um, so I, I started, uh, I started, well, it was, it was a bit desperate, really. If you know the church offices, you get to the bottom of two flights, three flights of stairs, and there's a locked door this way and a locked door that way. We were broken into a little bit back, so the door has been reinforced, and now it's like a really intimidating locked door. There's like, you're not going out, it's not happening. On the other side, I, I maybe could have escaped into the courtyard by diving through a pane of glass or something. <sighs> But my power was gone. So I reached out in desperation to my pastoral colleagues. I said, help, I'm trapped. I have no power in this situation. And Paul said, um, it's okay. He said, we'll post you sandwiches through the letterbox, which was just really encouraging. Um, Martin said, I'm in the borders. Um, so, but, but it turned out, it turned out that uh, the caretaker had keys and uh, he was just here. So I was rescued. I was rescued. I went from feeling powerless and trapped by my circumstances to knowing that somebody who had the power was coming to rescue. Isn't that good news? That's good news. And, uh, and it turns out that uh, I had the key for the Shamwick Place Church, not the church office, and that's why it didn't work. Slightly embarrassing. Um, but that happens, that happens. Now, we're powerless in this world. That's the bad news. But Jesus is powerful in this world. That's the good news. Perhaps you're afraid of some of those who rule over you. Perhaps you're afraid of what they're going to do to your life. Maybe, maybe it's David Cameron who's going to mess up your life. Maybe it's Nicola Sturgeon who's going to mess up your life. Maybe it's your boss who's going to mess up your life. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your teacher. What if you're afraid? What does this passage say for you if you're afraid? Well, first, 
Remember from this story just how little power some of those in power really had. Herod, afraid of the people, right? He's afraid of his guests. He's driven by his wife. You could almost feel sorry for him, except, except that he's busy working evil in the middle of it. So just remember how little power some of those in power over you really have. Does Nicola, does David Cameron really have that much power over you? Remember your boss? Your boss has got another boss over them. I used to run a, uh, an office here for, for Amazon.com, and uh, you know, I was the boss of the local organization. People have looked at me and thought, you got power. You can make decisions. You're in charge here. But I wasn't. I just had another boss over the pond. I didn't have power. Your boss is probably like that too. Think about your kids who seem to be exercising power over you. Well, who's exercising power over them? Do you know how strong the power of peer pressure is? How fearfully it presses on them? How unfree they are? So perhaps we should be feeling somewhat sorry for those who seem to be in power. We should be praying for them. But we do have to face that in our lives, some of those rulers will have and exercise power over us. They'll get what they wanted. Is that depressing? Is that terrifying? Well, certainly it is for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Imagine evil rulers who have nearly total power in a place like North Korea. Imagine being facing them. These rulers have real power, but we need to remember it's only for a time. It's only for a time. Their power will not last forever. Sure as night comes after each day, 100% of people die. Their power is going to fade to black in the end. There's one more thing I want us to consider today. Well, we see others with power so often makes us fearful in life, even though it's ultimately limited. Remember, Jesus has this power on another level. Let's think about that for a minute and recognize that Jesus has a power which should truly leave us fearful. As John the Baptist said while he was still free, he said Jesus is coming to divide the wheat and the chaff, so he talks about it, divide. It's coming to judge. Why, Jesus himself tells us we should be afraid. He says we should be afraid of the one who cannot just kill the body, but the one who can destroy both soul and body. Jesus is coming to judge. He's coming with real, total power. And those are serious words. His manifesto is very clear. We don't have any airy, fairy, vague promises that he can weasel his way out of once he needs to deliver on them. He's very clear what he's going to do. He's laid it out for us here in the Bible. No going back on this one. Our God's a God who keeps his promises. He's told us what he plans to do, and he will do it. He's coming to judge. He's coming to separate He's coming with power. Are you afraid of that power? Are you afraid of a coming judgment? A day when everything that is hidden will be revealed. All the 
all the secrets of our hearts, the things that we think we can just keep away from everyone else forever, that we think will die with us, are all going to be revealed. Every wrong thought, every wrong action, a day is coming when all of that will finally be dealt with. A day when, as Jesus himself says later on in Matthew, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory. No longer coming as a, a, a helpless baby. Think about it at Christmas. No, no longer coming as a prophet on the margins. No longer coming as one who can be betrayed and captured and killed. He's not coming like that. He's coming, not Jesus, meek and mild, but in his Father's glory, the glory of God. Psalm 97 describes this for us. It says, fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. It says, his lightning lights up the world and the earth sees and trembles. It says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of the earth, all the earth. That is the Father's glory. That's what Jesus is coming back with. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what they have done, Jesus says. All our good deeds, yeah. All our good deeds. Every one of our dark secrets too. Are you afraid of that day? There's a power. There's a fearful power. We can often think about that as a weighing up day, a day when there's going to be some sort of balancing. How is your good stack? How is your bad stack? About a, a heavenly swingometer. Have I got enough good in me to push this over to the safe side of the house? Is my good side going to carry the day and win the seat? That's not how this judgment is going to work. This is a judgment of black and white. This is a judgment of sheep and goats. As the Bible tells us, no one is righteous. Not one in this judgment. It tells us we all, like sheep, have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. That's what it says. It says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, this judgment is not a, it's not a I don't know, how did you do? I'm 52%, I'm in. This is not a marginal it's not first past the post. This is judgment according to God's perfect standard. A standard no one meets. Not even one. So we should be afraid of this power, this great ultimate power which is over everyone and everything which would decide our ultimate destiny. We should be afraid unless, unless we're among his people. Unless we're among those whose failings and whose wrongs, whose weaknesses and gaps are covered by him and his perfection. Whose wrongs have been taken off us, it says, and laid on him. Dealt with by Jesus at the cross. Already dealt with, already judged. Now, if we're in his people, then when this Jesus with his ultimate power shows up, we get to come to the ultimate post-election celebration. It's the party that doesn't end he finally takes up his rule. He doesn't need to go and see the queen. He rules over everything. He finally writes every wrong. We look at the injustices in the world and he stamps them out one by one. 
He finally brings peace to this world and an end to these wars that our politicians cannot stop. He finally brings justice and peace and we will be there in the endless celebration of his greatness and his victory. That ultimately is the one thing that can carry us through this powerless life. It's the one thing. So are you in his people? That is the key question. I'm going to pray and, uh, and then we'll respond together. Let me pray.